you will, turn in your Bibles to the book of Amos. The book of Amos. We're going to be looking at this third minor prophet this morning. If you're not sure where Amos is, again, it's in a very, uh, what I would call a lesser known part of Scripture, the section we call the minor prophets. Um, and they are located, you, you find Psalms, Proverbs, keep going, Song of Solomon, and you go past all the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. That's where we find ourselves today. And uh, I look forward to, to seeing what God has to say to us this morning. So have you heard about this phenomenon uh, lately called fake news? Has anybody heard about this? Fake news is actually a news item, right? Uh, fake news is this idea of uh, it's a false news story uh, that somebody puts out there. Uh, and it's often sensational, something that really grabs your attention. Um, and it, it's created for the purpose of generating uh, revenue. Somebody's trying to get rich off of it. Or somebody's trying to take down a political opponent or a political uh party or political movement or a company even. This happens from time to time. Uh, so we have this thing called fake news. One example was I heard recently of uh, a guy who wanted someone else's job. And so he announced that that person had retired, knowing that if he put that word out there, that would basically force them to retire and he could get the job. So it was fake news. Um, it's an interesting phenomenon we have today because then you get people saying, no, that's not fake. That's real. And then other people say, no, that's real, that's not fake, and you don't know who's fake and who's real, okay? It gets really confusing in our news cycle today. Uh, well, that's not something new to 2020. Um, even though the term might be, it's not new to 2020. Because what we see uh, in the book of Amos is that there were people during his time, when they heard Amos talk, they said, wait, is this fake news? Or they accused him of broadcasting fake news. And they said, uh, this guy Amos, you can't trust him. He's fake. You don't need to believe what he says. And so this morning, we want to dig into his book and realize that what he says is not fake. Uh, he has a powerful message for God's people then and God's people today. And so we want to look at that. So if you'll turn in your Bibles, Amos chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, this is kind of the introduction. We just have two places that give us information about Amos in this book. So chapter 1, verse 1, it says this. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. All right, so that's our introduction. Here's the guy. Here's where he's from. And so what we see in that first verse is he's a real person. Okay, he's a real person from a real place, a little town called Tekoa. It's about 10 or 12 miles outside of uh, Jerusalem. Um, and, and he's, uh, living in a real time. In fact, you know, when you send an email, oftentimes it puts a, or it puts a timestamp on there, right? Marcus emailed you at 1036 AM on Sunday morning. I'm not sending an email right now. Okay. But, but if I did, it would put a timestamp on there. And so this one, this verse says that Amos has a timestamp as well. The days of these Kings. And it says two years before the earthquake. And you might say, well, what earthquake are we talking about? We don't really even know. Uh, but anybody during that current time would have known, oh, just like we know, oh, remember when coronavirus hit us back in 2020? Uh, for the next 50 years, we're going to remember that date. Uh, and so it was a real time, a real point in time where this message comes uh, to, to, uh, to Amos. The other thing about Amos is when it gives us those names of those kings, we realize 
he is speaking at exactly the same time as Hosea, pretty much. So that first minor prophet, uh, Hosea, and this third one, Amos, are speaking to the same group of people at the same time. And there's some similarities in their message as well. Uh, but here's that's the first place we hear about who Amos is. But if you flip ahead uh, to chapter 7, and I'm going to put these verses on the screen as well so you can look on the screen or in your text. But chapter 7, verses 10 through 16 is the next place where it kind of gives us some biography on Amos. And so before we look at his message, I want us to understand who this man is. And so uh, here in chapter 7, what we're going to see is this is toward the end of the book. Out of nine chapters, this is the seventh chapter. And Amos has given all kinds of messages of judgment, really negative words, things saying, hey, y'all better be careful, be careful, be careful. I'm warning you. Um, and guess what? The people don't like it. And so what we find here in, in chapter 7, Amaziah, the priest of Bethel. So he's one of the religious leaders of the land. He basically comes out and says, that guy Amos, don't believe him. He's giving you fake news. Uh, he says he's, he's not speaking the truth to you. You don't have to believe him. And so here's what he says. Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, came to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel, and the land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. Now, uh, what you've got to understand about that verse right there is, is Amos is a guy, and we, we talked about this another time, I'm not going to go into depth, but there are two kingdoms in Israel. The northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. Those two kingdoms don't get along. Amos is speaking to the northern kingdom, but here's the problem. He's from the south, okay? He's from the south, and the people up north don't want to hear what anybody from the south has to say. And so uh, they say to him, that's why these people get upset, and they say, why is he saying this? Is he trying to get the people to revolt against the king? You know, they're, they're questioning his motives. But the bottom line is, this priest says, Amos has given us fake news. It's garbage. We don't need to listen to it. So verse 12, here's what he goes on to say. Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, or O prophet, Go, flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there. Go home, but never again prophesy at Bethel. For it is the king's sanctuary and it is a temple of the kingdom. We're going to come back to that point because this priest calls it the king's sanctuary. He's talking about a place of worship and he's got it a little mixed around. Who does the place of worship belong to? Not to the king. Okay, but we're going to come back to that. So verse 14, then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. So this Amos guy is just a common farmer and you can't trust those farmers, right? They don't know much. Um, uh, and then he goes on in verse 16, says this, now, therefore, Hear the word of the Lord. You say to me, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Israel. Verse 17, therefore, thus says the Lord. And then he goes on and announces the judgment that will come to this priest. So basically, uh, Amos here in this setting reminds that priest, he reminds all the people who are listening to him, hey, this message is not from me. I'm just a common farmer. I'm a a shepherd. My message is from the Lord Almighty. 
and you better pay attention. And so that's what, uh, that's what we want to look at here uh, in the next couple of minutes. So the man Amos, he is the real deal. He's a real prophet with a real message from the real God. Or we could say it another way, he is a true prophet with a true message, a message of truth from the only true God. And so he says to these people here, pay attention to the word from the Lord. And I think the same is true for us this morning. We want to pay attention to the message that God speaks to us uh, through these ancient words. So what is the message of Amos? What is the message of Amos? And if you have a bulletin, um, if you're online, you can uh, pull the bulletin up on our website. Uh, or if you're here and you have the paper copy, uh, this is the first thing in your bulletin is that Amos talks about the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem. What we see in Amos is that he says the heart of the problem is a matter of the heart. It's not just behaviors. It's not just the things you're doing wrong, although he does call the people out for that. He says the real problem is your heart. And so we want to unpack that a little bit. Um, the first part of Amos, we're going to uh, kind of focus in on chapter 4. So flip over to chapter 4 there. And, and Amos gives an indictment. Um, we could almost call it a verdict, basically. Uh, it's, a, it's a mix of an indictment and a verdict. He says, you are guilty because of the things you're doing. But guess what? He goes deeper. We're going to see in just a second. He goes deeper than the things they're doing. And he says it's because of the heart that you have behind those things. Um, this verdict that's guilty. This is a really interesting book. Uh, I don't know how many of you have been able to kind of follow along with this reading challenge, this idea of reading through each book. And the first time you read through a book like Amos, you might say, what in the world is he talking about? Um, well, I sent out in our weekly email this week. This is something that goes along with Right Now Media. You can look at the Bible Project, which does an incredible job of giving you like a five to seven minute overview of the book. So I would really encourage you watch that. And then read the book and it'll help all these pieces fall together. But the book of, uh, of Amos is, is actually one of the fascinating ones of the prophets. Because in chapter 1, he starts out and he says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And then he starts going down the list of all the enemies of Israel. He starts with... Uh, for three sins of Damascus and for four, I will punish them. So Damascus is the capital of Syria, one of the great enemies of Israel. And, and, and Amos announces God is going to punish them. And so you can just hear the people of Israel saying, yeah, get them. You know, we're so glad. Get those Syrians. And then he goes on, uh, verse 6, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will punish them. Gaza is one of the main cities of, of the Philistines. And if you read the Old Testament, who are the bad guys in the Old Testament? The Philistines are mentioned over and over and over again. And God says, I'm going to bring judgment on them. And so you can just see God's people just cheering. Yes, he's going to destroy them. And then he comes to verse 9 for three transgressions of Tyre. That's another nation nearby. Verse 13 for three transgressions of the Ammonites. Uh, chapter 2 verse 1 for three transgressions of Moab. So the people are just getting pumped. They're excited. And then even uh, verse 4 of chapter 2 says, For three transgressions of Judah. Remember the southern kingdom? Uh, so the northern kingdom is just saying, Yes, even our rivals. God's going to punish all of them. They're guilty. And then he gets here in chapter 2 verse 6. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And so he says to his people, these Israelites, he says, actually, you're also guilty. It's not just the people around you. It's easy to look at the people around you and say, man, they have problems. Those Moabites, they're terrible. 
Even the Judites, you know, we don't like them. But then God says, look at yourselves. Look at what you're doing. Let me point out why you also deserve judgment. So he gives them this guilty verdict. Uh, In chapter 2, I want to mention briefly kind of what he says here. Um, It says, verse 6, Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. What's it talking about there? They're treating humans as though they're property. So then when people become poor and can't pay their debts, they actually have the legal right to take them and sell them as slaves. And he's saying, you're abusing people. You're treating them as property. You're forgetting that these people are made in God's image. Verse 7, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. In other words, you don't even care about what's happening to poor people. You're taking advantage of them. You're, they already have very little, and you're taking even more from them. Uh, this is that idea of, of, of justice. It's not right. They're treating people wrongly. Verse 8, they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. And so this idea of immorality is going on here too. So all these sinful behaviors are happening. And God says, because you're doing these things, even though I've warned you not to, you're going to be condemned. Chapter 4, though, this is where we want to focus. Chapter 4 says this. Here's kind of the indictment that summarizes a lot of the things in the book of Amos. So it starts off like this. He says, hear this, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. So first of all, as you look at that verse one there, uh, he's talking to the, the wives of these rulers who are doing these oppressive things. I don't care what culture you're in, uh, it's never a compliment to call someone a cow, okay? To call a woman a cow is never a good idea. Um, And he says, but you are oppressing the poor. And I'm sure some of these leading women of the city would say, what are you talking about? We don't even talk to the poor. How could we ever oppress them? Well, they had a passive role in this whole um, unjust system. They're not the ones oppressing the poor, but as we saw in chapter 2, their husbands, who are the rulers, probably are. And what's motivating them? The wives are saying to the husbands, bring to us more money, more possessions, so that we can live a luxurious lifestyle. The next verse, verse 2. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. It's a pretty graphic image, isn't it? of an invader coming in, breaking holes in the walls, and actually dragging people out with hooks and ropes. Verse 3, And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into harmon, declares the Lord. In other words, what's interesting in the minor prophets is this principle of divine retribution. If you treat people this way, God's going to make you uh, pay for how you've treated them, is what he's telling them, unless you turn back to me. You've treated people like trash, you're going to be treated like trash. Not a pretty picture. But here's where it gets interesting in verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 4, as God says, here's the reason this is all happening. It's the heart behind your actions that I'm really concerned about. So look at verse 4. This is what we call a prophetic irony, okay? So Amos basically says, hey, come to Bethel and transgress. Come to Gilgal 
and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning. Bring your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. So what's going on in these verses? Amos says, you're going through all these religious motions. In fact, when you come to Bethel, that's like saying, come to the sanctuary, come to the house of worship, to the place of worship, come to Gilgal. That's the other place of worship. Come, come on. And instead they think they're coming to worship. And he says, you come and guess what you're actually doing? You're transgressing. Come to Gilgal and multiply your transgressions. In other words, their worship to God What they thought they were doing as worship to God was offensive to him. The heart of the problem. Their bad behavior was only a symptom of their heart problem. What was their heart problem? Look at, uh, flip over to chapter 5, verses 21 and 24, or 21 and 22 and 23. This is an even stronger statement. This is God saying to them, what you're doing when you think you're worshiping me is actually repulsive to me. Verse 21, I hate I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Now, those are some sobering words. Because if you think about it, God's saying, you're coming and gathering for worship. You think you're gathering together to worship God And in fact, you're disgusting God. And, you know, so as people of God, we have to ask, could we make that same mistake? What's what's going on here? What's their big mistake? What's their problem? And God says the heart of your heart is the problem. Your heart is the problem. Because their thought is that worship is just something I do. Maybe I'll bring an offering to God and he'll give me something for it. Maybe I'll bring an offering to God and, and I'll be good enough so that he'll like me. It's just something I do. It's the motions I go through. And God says that's not what worship is at all. Because see, when God looks at us, he doesn't just see us for 60 minutes on a Sunday morning. You know, when when we come in here to worship, it's not like God all of a sudden says, okay, now I'm going to tune in to George and Lynn over there. And now I'm going to watch them, okay? Or uh, I'm going to tune in to uh, Randy and Peggy and and see what's going on just during the 10 o'clock hour on Sunday morning. That's not what worship is to God. That's our corporate worship. That's when we gather together to worship. But God says worship is a lifestyle. Worship is a lifestyle. It's a relationship with him. It's not something you do. Worship is something that you are. It's not just a place that you go like Bethel or like Trinity Church. That's not what worship is. It's an important part of your worship, but that's not the definition of worship. It's not words that you say that you recite over and over again or sacrifices that you bring or offerings that you put on the altar or in the in the offering plate that's not what worship is worship is a lifestyle and when we gather like i said god's not just seeing us during this 60 minutes this is 60 minutes of the whole picture that he sees and when he's watching you as he loves to do with his children he notices all of us Chapter 5, verse 24. This is one of the most powerful verses in the Minor Prophets, and you've probably heard it. So remember, it comes just after God condemns them for their worship. He says, verse 24, But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Powerful phrase. God says, 
what you're doing on the other six days of the week affects how you worship me. Your worship of me is not just the 60-minute period when you gather. Your worship is your whole lifestyle. And so he says, let justiceness, let righteousness, let my character pervade every area of your life. Let it be like an ever-flowing stream in the midst of your life. So worship is a lifestyle. It's not things we do. It's a relationship. So these people in Amos's time are not just guilty of wrong actions. They're guilty of a twisted heart. They think that God is something they can use, something that makes them feel better. Um, but they don't have a relationship with him. They have a distracted heart. Even more so probably what we would call a selfish heart. Remember, they were doing all these things to benefit themselves, neglecting the needs of the poor and the sick and those who were needy. And they were worrying just about themselves. They were focusing on themselves, not on God, which is the opposite of worship. The heart of worship is to keep your focus on God. So the message of Amos is that they've been indicted and they're declared guilty. They're guilty of this. They've turned their back on God through their actions and through their heart. And God says, that's not okay. In fact, he says, I've invited you to come back to me many, many times. In fact, uh, that's our next point is that he says, I've given you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to come back and follow life my way. Follow me. I want to have this relationship with you. And, he's, and he lays out in the Old Testament how that's supposed to look. Look again at chapter 5, uh, verse 4. Three times in, verse five, in chapter 5 it says, uh, For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel. Chapter 5, verse 4. Seek me and live. Verse 5. But do not seek Bethel. Do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall go into exile. Bethel shall come to nothing. Verse 6. Seek the Lord and live. Then skip ahead to verse uh, 14. Seek good and not evil so that you may live. God says, here's the path for living. Seek me. Worship me, have a relationship with me in my heart, in your heart. You know, chance after chance, they have rejected these opportunities. Look at back at chapter four where we're focusing. Uh, chapter six, or chapter four, verse six says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. In other words, you had a famine. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Verse 7, I also withheld the rain from you when there were three months to harvest. So it talks about how thirsty they were. But the end of verse 8, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. In other words, he's trying to get their attention over and over again. He's saying, hey, something's not right here, people. Turn to me, return to me. Verse 9, I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Joel talked about that last week, the book of Joel. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Verse 10, I sent you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. Plagues came through. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Verse 11, I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, verse 12, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God. But the point of that middle section of chapter 4 is God says, I've given you opportunity after opportunity to to return to me. My arms are always open waiting for you to come back to me, to trust me, to walk with me. 
And yet the people rejected it over and over again. No matter what circumstances they were going through, they did not see it as an opportunity to turn back to God. Chance after chance they rejected. And so what's the result? The result is the judgment that he announces in verses 12 and 13. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. That title, the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord of hosts, is a great title if God is on your side and advocating for you. If he's using it as a term of, like, I'm here to punish you, it's one of the most fearful titles in the entire scripture. The Lord God of armies is somebody you want on your side, not against you. And God says, I've given you all these opportunities to return to me, and yet you've turned, rejected me, and so now I'm going to have to punish you. One thing last week, I wasn't here, but Joe Bernard did such a great job of explaining is that when God talks about these opportunities to repent, it's not like he's standing there with his arm outstretched saying, don't mess up. I'm, I'm here to hit you. If you mess up, I'm going to just smack the tar out of you. Um, that's not the way it is. God's standing here saying, I'm offering you with both hands wide open, true life, true freedom, true love, true salvation. Please take it. And yet, as humans, so often we reject that and turn away from it. And God says, there's a point at which I have to get your attention through judgment. So the result is judgment. Sums up much of the book. In fact, you all know this now. You've been reading the Minor Prophets for three or four weeks. There's so much judgment in these books. It can almost be depressing at times. But I think one of the points we see when we look at this judgment, we look at the heart of the problem really throughout all of Amos is the major point that I kind of see that struck me is God is saying to the people of Israel, don't be looking around at other people who are messing up. I'm asking you to look at yourself. Examine your own heart. Is your heart pursuing me? Do you know me? Do you have a relationship with me? Don't worry about what those other people over there are doing. Yes, I'm going to take care of them as well. But in this book, God's saying, I'm concerned about your heart. And how you approach me. How you seek to worship me. I think God says the same thing to us this morning. So the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. These are sinful people. They've turned away. They've rejected God. Even though they're going through religious motions. They're coming to church. They're coming to the worship gatherings. God says, yet in your heart, you've rejected me. You're just trying to use me. I want a relationship with you. That's the second thing about the message of Amos. And this is incredible. All the minor prophets have something like this. Is that you have a problem. In fact, a problem that God says is going to be very painful to remedy. And yet he says, I give you the offer of hope. I give you the offer of hope. Uh, Look at verses chapter 9. This is the end of the book. Chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. Um. I don't have it on the screen for you, but I'll just read it. It says this, in that day, in other words, in that day after the judgment is all over, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and I will repair its branches. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, he who sows the seed. The mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. It's a beautiful picture that God paints there. A beautiful picture of restoration of just overflowing with abundance. The plowman shall overtake the reaper. In other words, the person who's planting crops, they can't even get them harvested fast enough because they're just overflowing with so much food. And Amos says, God wants to restore you. I want to offer you restoration. But did you notice where the restoration comes from? I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. In other words... There is hope only through a descendant of David, through one of David's offspring, that person that we know as Jesus Christ. That's the person who's promised here at the end of Amos. Although humans are hopeless and flawed, Israel was flawed. Here's some news. You are flawed. I am flawed. But there is hope through Jesus, the descendant of David. Acts chapter 15. Acts 15 kind of makes this point. Uh, It makes this point that on this passage, we know that this is what what Amos is talking about. Um, With these words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. See, that's good news. It's hope not just for Israel, that they're going to be restored, but it says it's hope for all the Gentiles, all peoples, including you and including me. There is hope through Jesus, the descendant of David. We are given this offer of hope. And so when we come to the end of this book, we have to ask, what's the message of Amos? And I think he said it three times there in chapter 5. Seek the Lord and you will live. Seek the Lord and you will live. Think about this. When he says seek the Lord, he's not talking about seeking a place. doesn't mean you come to church. He's not talking about a list of things you have to do, a list of sacrifices you have to complete. That's not what it means to seek the Lord. To seek the Lord means to have a relationship with him, to know him, to trust him, to trust that descendant of David, whose name is Jesus Christ, to trust that he alone can pay for your sins, and then to follow him. That's what it means to seek the Lord, to trust and then to follow. And so I'd ask you this morning, have you trusted him? And if you have trusted him for your salvation, for forgiveness of your sins, if you've trusted him for that, then are you seeking to follow him every day? God says to us through Amos, seek me and you will live. And that's my invitation for you this morning is to seek him and live. I'm going to close this with a word of prayer, say a benediction, and then I'm going to stick my neck out a little bit here. I don't sing, 
not going to sing, but I would actually ask us after I pray to uh, let's all stand up together and uh, and try to sing the doxology. We don't have our worship leader here because um, he's over in the youth building, but I think we can all sing uh, and, and just sing that acapella together. So if you will, please stand for the closing prayer and then we'll uh, try this uh, singing together without a leader. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to gather here this morning and worship you. Father, thank you for this message from Amos. I pray, God, that each one of us would seek you and truly live, live a life that you've designed us to live. God, thank you for your son, Jesus, who you sent to save us, to give us hope, even in the midst of our hopeless situation. And Father, we thank you that you are able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before your presence in glory with great joy. And to you, our only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen.